Hi everyone, welcome back to Mission Japan. In this series, we talk about the various diplomatic missions that have established a presence in Japan. More importantly, we talk about what the foundation of that relationship is and the embassy site that they occupy, where it came from, who it belonged to before the embassy was able to occupy it, and where the embassy was before it came into Tokyo. Today, I'm going to focus on Sweden, and my guest today I'm honored to have is Magnus Robach, the ambassador for Sweden. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Sweden has a long relationship. You're just celebrating your 150th anniversary of the diplomatic relationship, right? Yes, but we did have contacts previous to this, uh, and the most famous Swede who experienced Japan is Carl Peter Thunberg in the 18th century, who was a pupil of Linnaeus and was able to discover Japan uh, as a member of the Dutch team in Dejima. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually he uh, uh, compiled the first flora of Japan. He wasn't a diplomat though, he came over as a scientist, as a botanist? Absolutely. As part of a, a scientific team that was just traveling around the world or Asia? No, no, I think he was personally employed as a medic or a doctor at, for the Dutch uh, colony in mm -hmm. Dejima. And so he traveled with that delegation, he was stationed in Dejima, and perhaps took some trips up to Edo. Well, only one. Okay. Leaving Dejima, going on to the mainland, was a quest, something, a, a crime, uh, where you could risk the death penalty. So there was one occasion when the shogun uh, summoned them, they made a delegation, and they went on foot, to, uh, to Edo, and that is when he was able to compile and pick up the flowers and plants that were the basis for his treaty. And he, he published this and he went back to Sweden, he made a, a presentation to the Royal Academy? Yes, he told the Academy about Japan. It's a fascinating read. Uh, still today, with many things, you know, I laughingly recognize as my own impression. We should, we should post it up on the, the webpage. Yes. I'd love know. to see it. A lot of the things that he saw about Japan are echoes of what we can see and experience today, I guess. If you like, in, in short, you know, our own prejudices, and of course these prejudices are, are often wrong, but there's some grain of truth in them Interesting. As well. So the underpinning after Dejima, after being kind of affiliated with the, the Dutch mission that was there, what happened after that? There's a, a gap of a yeah, there was a lull. Years. I think there was a lull, uh, but as Japan gradually opened up, uh, through a, an internal struggle and an external pressure from 1853 uh, until the major restoration, many countries were wondering, well, you know, if others are there, why shouldn't we be there as mm -hmm. well? So the, the Swedes take a, took a serious interest, and finally there was an, a, a treaty signed, actually, as things turned out, on Meiji year one, 1868. Okay. okay. The Swedes have been seafarers throughout their history. Was it the fact that they were seafarers that kind of brought them to Japan and kind of underpinned that, that relationship? Well, the truth is the seafarers in question were the Norwegians, which is a different nation. But we were in a union. Sweden was in a union with Norway at that time. Mm -hmm. And so these Norwegians' interests of accessing uh, Japanese ports, I think, were one major motivation to sign this treaty. Founded on trade? Founded on trade. Okay, so the trade was between Japan, perhaps China, the Philippines, and going back to Europe and facilitating that, that route? Exactly. Okay. The mission when it was established, 
How was that established? Do you have records or, or? We do. We had a very, very active first ambassador here. His name is a famous Swedish name, Wallenberg. And he is an ancestor of one of the uh, most important industrial conglomerates in Sweden today. And he really pushed for an increased interest that Swedish industry, which was in an early stage, uh, but for example, the industrial the, revolution. There was, was just the invention starting. of the ball bearing, and ball bearing was absolutely key to any industrial activity. So this was the first major Swedish product to be sold uh, on the Japanese market. Now we're in the very early 20th century. That's incredible. How how is that? I mean, they had a they had a a, a steel industry in Sweden. They were producing high quality. Ball bearings? They did, at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and, but the mission was established in 1907, and I think the ball bearing company, which is still around, SKF, one of the world leaders, uh, established itself in 1912. Okay, 1912. And in fact, uh, SKF was the mother company to what became Volvo. Okay. So the, the fellow who established this first mission, he was, he was an industrialist, he wasn't no, a diplomat. No, he was uh, basically a banker. Okay. Yes, but had w wide economic interests and was a very dynamic person. And he really pushed uh, Swedish industrialists to take a serious look mm -hmm. at Japan. But there was a lot of suspicion. And in fact, uh, another deal was difficult, and that was the Swedish safety match. Another great Swedish invention at the early 20th century. And the, the, the Japanese bought a lot of those matches until after a few years they discovered how to produce them themselves. Mm -hmm. And this created a kind of feeling that we should be careful selling things to Japan because they're very good. High technology. Energy. Right. That's right. I imagine they established their first diplomatic presence in Kobe because that was the, the most active place for diplomatic missions at that point in time. Is that where the Swedish mission first established? No. Uh, we did have some consular representatives, but Mr. Wallenberg's mission was established right away in Tokyo. And in fact, he took a suite at the Imperial Hotel. Okay. Then, we have been in 17 different locations until we finally found our wonderful present location. Yes. So there was a, lot, a long struggle, lasting about 50 or 60 years, because, before we actually found our home mm -hmm. in Tokyo. Right, I understand that you had a, a mission in... Uh, consular mission in Kobe. You also had one of your missions established in Skiji, and it seems like a lot of missions. That must have been like the the Gaijin Ghetto, like That's kind true. of like Aoyama is yes. today. But it was a very short period. Uh huh. Mm. It is true. After Imperial Palace, we did settle for a short while uh, okay. in Skiji. And the current uh, place that you occupy, it's just in central Tokyo. It's a beautiful building. Is this where the original mission was? No. Uh, there was nothing there. This was a small farming village called Imaidai. Right up here at Okura, exactly. that, that rise yes, on the yes, hill, yes, that was called yes. Imaidai. Imaidai, and the chieftain, his name was Ichibe. And after a while, probably after his death, this uh, area became known as Ichibecho, Ichibe. There was even a, a, a red light district there for a while. Mm -hmm. And luckily, it was closed down in 1840, uh, through the Tempo reform, when there was an effort to clean up. The, Japan had become decadent, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly on this side, and, but this, this red light district was then closed. Farmland. Farmers, and then this red light district, so, but still very rural, very mm -hmm. rural. And in fact, I've seen photos of this land, uh, totally empty, a barren land, no house, nothing. 
It's amazing uh, to see how then very quickly it uh, urbanized. How, how were you able to acquire this piece of well, property? Well, this was done through the farsightedness of a number of Swedish industrialists who had settled here. The most famous known na name is Gadelius, uh, who founded a trading house. It works still today as a trading house, export-import. Um, and they felt that the Swe Sweden need proper representation on its own land. And mm -hmm. so they acquired this land, 6,000 square meters, at the price in 1939 of 400,000 yen. To make a long story short, the Swedish government sold half of this land to Mori Building Company in 1987 at the price of 120 million euros. Oh, that was right at the height of the bubble, too. So, yes, that's right, because you've got the huge Mori building. It's a complex. It's, a, it's basically a, a residence, isn't it? Well, it's a mix. Uh, mm -hmm. there, were, there were new regulations in Tokyo. You had to build apartments as this, uh, and combine it with okay. office space. So it was the Shiroyama project. Uh -huh. And that place has always been like a garden. I mean, even before you built the, this, um, it's about a 10-story building now, right? Seven, yeah. Seven stories. Um, but it's always been like a garden, and that property, basically twice its size, used to belong to the, uh, the Swedish mission. Yes, I remember because I served here in the first term in early 1980s, and the embassy was fairly small, uh, built in 1955, and surrounded with this beautiful That's garden. Right. And the ginkgo trees, we loved those ginkgo trees at the far end of the land, and we were so fearful that with the big you know, boom and the construction going on, we would lose those ginkgo mm -hmm. trees, but they have been saved and they're there in all their majesty still. That's right, you've served before here. This is your second time here in Japan. That's true. And uh, earlier in your career, they still had oyashiki in that little neighborhood, didn't they? What is oyashiki? Oyashiki are the thatched roofs, the samurai homes that are, are kind of on that neighborhood. Was it not? I wasn't aware of it. I, I, I have a very strong recollection of uh, where you now have the Izumi garden side with this huge right. uh, high-rise. On that slope was a traditional village of wooden houses, but the thatched roofs, I don't yeah. remember. Right. So if I've got this right, in around 1968 or so, the building was demolished. You sold off part of no, the this property? No, this was towards 1980. Our discussions with Mori Construction started in 1985, mm -hmm. and the deal was concluded in 1987, and in 1991, uh, the new embassy was inaugurated. Okay, that was a, a, a big construction because that's a seven-story building, and it takes up the entire plot of land, but it's beautifully constructed. It's got a bit of a staircase, and it's got greenery all around it. It was very complex because the Shiroyama high-rise is huge, takes, a lot of, takes a away a lot of light to the neighboring buildings. Mm -hmm. So they had to calculate very carefully how to construct the house to have the, 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 the least possible sh shade on, the, oh. on the, uh, the neighbors. I see. But the idea that So that's the, why it's somewhat pyramidal. Exactly. Right? But there was also this idea of a, 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 a facade which follows the rise, the rise of the sun. So you could mm -hmm. theoretically, at least certain seasons, follow the, the, the rise of the sun along the, 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 the um, facade of the house. How about that? It's got a beautiful iron gate, wrought iron gate, um, and it's, it's very, it's 
well situated. It doesn't look out of place at all in that neighborhood there, right over by the Oakland Hotel. Been a Hotel. lot of discussion about the color of that fence and that gate because it's bright red, mm -hmm. and red is a traditional color of our farmhouses in Sweden. At the same time, red is you you find the Buddhist temples are often painted red, mm -hmm. uh, or is a dominant color. The question is, there are so many reds. And so now some people say that the red we have now is neither Swedish nor Japanese. We'll have, uh, to, we'll have to study this more closely, see if we can find the optimum color. Okay, this entire building here is occupied by the embassy. You no, have, no, no, no. It's, um, in fact, it's owned not by the foreign ministry, but our building board, uh, which owns it, operates it, and rents it to various tenants. But of course, the Swedish embassy is the, is the main tenant. Mm -hmm. uh, we have also a business, Sweden, which is a very important associate to the embassy, but separate from the embassy. Um, and we have some companies rent, and also even private persons living in the, in the apartments. Okay, is an entry and exit uh, somewhat difficult then? You have to have a security pass to go through? Well, there may be, that's true. We're discussing this at, at the present time, how mm -hmm. we could arrange this in a, in a, in a, in a smooth uh, way. Okay. We have an auditorium, uh, we have ex exhibition spaces, many conference rooms, and so on. So it's an extremely useful meeting point for anything that is Japan, Sweden. Sure, I've been to many uh, exhibitions there, speeches. You have a great auditorium, wood paneled, and uh, the acoustics are really yeah, nice. We're very privileged in this right. way. Tell me about the, the community here, the Swedish community, and their involvement with the embassy. How is, how, I mean, there's a chamber of commerce, obviously. I went to one of the events just uh, two weeks ago. Yes. Well, it's kind of a strange thing. It's not only Sweden. I think most of our countries in Europe uh, face the same situation. We have an increasingly dense relationship, but the Swedish community here is dwindling. Mm -hmm. uh, we have many, much less expats, you know, the expats of the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, these Swedish companies, basically, they are run by Japanese or other nationals, many different nationalities. Our companies are now really multicultural, multi-international. Multi, uh, mm -hmm. um, and so there are less Swedes actually dispatched here for a number of years working in our companies. Uh, we have, of course, the Swedes who marry Japanese and live for that, for personal mm -hmm. reasons. Many students and researchers coming for a shorter period. Uh, but the, 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 the face of the Swedish colony is quite quickly changing. Uh, before we wrap this up, do you have any state visits that are planned in the near term? And also, I'd like to hear about what's the, the, the bulk of the trade between Japan and Sweden? Is it, is it automobiles? Is it high-tech? I don't think it's probably finished products or lumber anymore. It is. Really? Uh, yes, 10% of our exports is lumber. Or so sawn timber products. Isn't that 10%? funny? Because yeah. with all the lumber that they have here in Japan, you would think that they've already got a, a, a homegrown market. Well, uh, they, of course, uh, they have their own market, but they, they have a great need, and I think an increasing need for sawn timber. Uh, and the, the, the offer on the Japanese side is still quite limited. Mm -hmm. uh, the um, Japanese uh, wood industry is struggling. It's a very fragmented situation with many small holders. And of course, these forests are very often in vertical slopes that are actually very difficult to exploit. Right. Uh, our trade is extremely diversified uh, and it's mainly business to business. 
Uh, but we do, of course, have some consumer products like Volvo cars, but also IKEA, well-known, right. HM, and so on. Mm -hmm. It's really um, a, a very strong relationship, isn't it? Very strong, very solid. You having, uh, has the, the king been to Japan recently? Yes. When we told our Japanese counterparts that the king was keen to come to celebrate the 150 years of relations, they said, he is extremely welcome. We see here he's been here 17 times. Uh, he likes Japan. So it was a very you know, nice thing for us to say, uh -huh. yes, he does. And he's coming. And so he came with the queen uh, to celebrate 150 years in the month of April. That sounds wonderful. What an amazing event. Thank you very much for joining us today. The Embassy of Sweden, 150-year diplomatic relationship here in Japan. Please stay tuned as we continue to explore other countries and their diplomatic missions in Japan. Stay tuned.